Okay, and we are back with a new episode. So, how are you doing, Lisa? I am doing pretty good. Uh, got the air conditioner fixed in my car. Awesome. Fixing to get the air conditioner fixed in my house. Important, because it has very been Very important. Hot. In Oklahoma, it has been very, very hot. hot. Very gross. Other than that, hanging out, kids playing in the water hose a lot and doing the summer thing. Now that we're out of distance learning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not school, but distance learning, you know. But yeah, how have you been? Pretty good. Had the best time with your kiddos. Yeah. The other they night. Got to have a sleepover. Um, yes. The best time. I love those girls. Oh, they're a um, mess. I have the cutest picture hanging on my bulletin board in there behind my desk yeah. that Zoe made me uh-huh. that says, you are my sunshine. Aww. Oh, just love it. With a blue butterfly. With a blue butterfly. Zoe is my eight-year-old. She's my oldest, and she is my artist, and she yes. is my lever of sweet messages. Yes. She does that a lot. I always find little notes all over the house and little surprises on my desk when they leave. I right. Mean, Oh, I love them. We <laughs> played outside and had dance parties. Yeah, they said they had a great time. They, it was just so much fun. Then made they made brownies with Rissa. Oh, you, they were you guys good. Came over for yes. game night, and it was they just were so good fun. Brownies. We had a Monopoly night and brownies. So yeah, we've had a really good start to our yeah. summer so far. It has been nice. Even with social distancing still and, you know, all the craziness happening right now in the world, we've still had a good time. It has been so nice for you guys living so close close. and knowing that we all have just been kind of staying in the house so it's safe for us to gather together together and to be able to take my girls off your hands and give you a break every once in a while. yes. And being a homebody really has paid off for our family, guys. Right. <laughs> Sitting at home watching true crime stories has never paid off more than during the COVID exactly. crisis of 2020. And so for those of you who are just now finding us and just kind of starting at this. Where have you been this whole time? Yeah. <laughs> no. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> um, Lisa's my sister, so her girls are my nieces, and I adore my nieces and stuff so we spend a lot of time together yes we do um so yeah we live very close to each other we do and we have a podcast together and we are always around yeah (laughs) we are together one way or another yes every week whether we're podcasting or not and this was a hobby of ours that has become an even bigger hobby of ours now yes because Netflix and chill is cool for some people, but I like true crime and right. chill. <laughs> <laughs> and the killer boxes were just too expensive to keep doing. Right, they are too expensive. And you don't get you don't get the satisfaction of really getting to devour the evidence. It comes in little pieces. Right. And that's cool, but I mean, if you had the choice between watching one episode of something a week or binging it you want to binge it right Right. so like the fact that it was just little tiny pieces of the puzzle is intriguing but frustrating when you have all these ideas but then you have to wait a whole month before you can continue on the next ideas yeah it wasn't so much anticipation as frustration for me (laughs) you know i wanted it all yeah yeah yeah. so so, um, as you go back and listen to back episodes, or for those of you who have kept up with us from the beginning, you will hear her littles in the background from time to time. My daughters make their debut here and there. Um, my kids are all grown, so they make their debut with their own stories. Our mom has had a couple of stories yep. in here. Yeah. I know that my husband has been heard in the background yeah. at times. My dogs 
have yes. been heard in the background. My cat has been heard in the background. Yep. It's so a this family is just, show whether you want it to be or not. Exactly. <laughs> Our whole family is involved in one way or another. Yep. <laughs> and that's the way we love it because exactly. we are definitely family people. Exactly. With really, really weird murder fetishes. <laughs> <laughs> murder is our thing. Murder is our thing. And speaking of murder. Ooh, good segue. Yes. I am murder tonight. Yay. And so I have this really interesting murder. And I find it really interesting because this came from an area that I used to live in. Or at least I used to live close to. Um, I am going to do the murder of Mark Kilroy. Okay. And so this is really interesting. This um, this happened down um, around the South Padre Island, Brownsville, Texas area, okay. which, you know, yep, I lived down there for about 17 years. Long um, time. Yep. So you've been down that area Several many times. times. Yep. So Very nice place yes, to visit. Loved it. If you ever get a chance to go down to the valley and Port see. Port Isabel is a beautiful city oh, right yes. next to South Padre Island. And yes. Brownsville. And yes. Yeah, it's great. Wonderful place. Great people. Things like this that I'm about to tell you don't happen every day, so don't get that afraid. But <laughs> this was a very interesting story. Yes. <laughs> so Mark Kilroy was 21 years old. He was from Santa Fe, Texas. Um, he was a pre-med student at the University of Texas in Austin, which is a great school. Okay. In March of 1989, he and some friends threw bags in their car and headed to South Padre Island for spring break. There you go. That place gets crazy on spring oh, break. Oh, it sure does. Um, that was one place I did avoid when I lived there. Um, if you're a people watcher, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Go spend your spring break on the beach just watching people. Take your sunscreen. You Rent know. a hotel room months in advance. Yes. Because they sell out fast. And then just watch the craziness happen around you. It's it's amazing. Yes. So they were having a very fun time. They went down for spring break. They were prepared for a good time. Absolutely. It is. it is party central. Exactly. So they soon fell into a routine of partying on the beach during the day and heading to Mexico at night. For those of you who aren't familiar with the area, South Padre Island is right on the Mexican border. In fact, there is a beach, Boca Chica Beach, that is right on the Mexican border. It's right across from Brownsville, Texas, yeah. which sits right on the border. There is a border crossing right there. So they got into that rhythm. They were going out and having sun and music. Um, they were going to bathing suit contests, and then they would drive to Brownsville, Texas, where I actually used to work at Brownsville, <laughs> Texas yes, um, for a while. Yep. And they would cross the border into Matamoros, Mexico, and that's where thousands of college students would cross for cheap alcohol and lax drinking laws. Yeah. Because a lot of times they didn't card. Um, their drinking laws were a lot different. And they would just basically serve anybody and everybody. Yep. And so they would go across there and they would get drunk. Have a good time. Party yeah. Party. And then they would walk back across the bridge. and Which is in... common, right? For oh, like yes. kids down there, especially spring breakers and stuff to go down. Absolutely. Especially, yeah. What year was this? This was 1989. Okay, so the border was way different than it is now. Oh, yeah. 1989, they were walking across as tourists. They weren't having oh, yeah. to be, you know, passport and all that stuff. They weren't. This was fun. Oh, yeah. Pre-9-11. Yeah. Pre-9-11, they the, were coming and going as they pleased. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was so much easier to get across. Um, Pre-9-11, I used to, to go across several times. a lot, and it was so easy. Yeah, we went across with you guys several oh, times yeah. before, and I mean... Yes, it was so much easier at that time. Yeah. So, um, the night of March 13th, 1989, was... The same as always, you know, they had spent the day out, and then Mark and his friends went across the bridge to Matamoros, okay. and they headed to a few bars, and eventually Mark got separated from his friends. Oh, no. They'd gone to these bars, he's hanging out, he met some women that he had seen at the Miss Canline 
competition earlier that day. Okay. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning on March 14th when his friends left the bar and they found him leaning against a car outside of the bar talking to these women that they recognized from the beach. Yeah. And so they were like, okay, we're going to make our way back over to the bridge. Come on. And so they start walking. What you don't know, okay, so in Mexico, if you've never been over there, this place gets so crowded during spring break. Yes. And at this time, I mean, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, everybody's heading back, and the streets just get really crowded, and so they're all heading back in this crowd. They kind of got separated in the crowd, you know, and... They figured, okay, so we got separated, but we'll all meet at the car. That was the plan that has happened before, you know, and they get across the bridge and they all go to the car and they all meet up at the car and then they head back to South Padre Island to their hotel. Yeah. So, I mean, they're not really thinking this is a big deal. This is the same as every other night, every other morning this when they go happens, back. This happens, you know, you get separated, you meet someone, or, you yeah. know. Yeah, okay. So, they get through the border crossing. They get back to their car. And after a bit, they they wait, and they think, well, maybe he met somebody else, and he went back with, you know, one of these girls or with somebody else. And so they decide to go back to, you know, South Padre Island. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so they get back there and they go to sleep. They wake up and he's still not back at the hotel. Okay. So they call the police and report him missing. Um, After an initial search, uh, they didn't find any information on his whereabouts. Police start to suspect foul play. Oh, no. But they had no idea of the nightmare that they were about to discover. Oh, man. Okay. So, let's keep going here because this gets real crazy real fast. All right. Let's do it. True spring break style, huh? Real crazy real fast. Real crazy real fast. This is going to escalate quickly, guys. (laughs) So, when Mark Kilroy was separated from his friends, when they were heading back to the U.S., It wasn't actually by accident. Okay. So he was targeted by two gangsters, Serafine Garcia and Melio Torres. Okay. Uh, They delivered him to a ranch known as Santa Elena, owned by Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. Okay. Constanzo was born in Miami, Florida, to a 15-year-old mother from Cuba His father died and his mother remarried and had another child. His first stepfather died and left the family some money, but Constanzo's mother quickly remarried and had another child. The second stepfather was in the local drug trade in a cult. Constanzo and his mother was arrested several times for petty crimes. Okay. So after Constanzo graduated high school, his mother became convinced he was psychic. His okay. mother practiced Palo Mayombe, a black arts practice that was developed in Cuba by African slaves from the Congo. Oh, wow. So I told you, magic's involved. Magic? It did escalate super fast. Yes. So psychic, magic. So is this like is just straight up magic or is this like voodoo magic? I mean, it came um, from Africa. It's, is it it's like kind of voodoo type magic. Kind of voodoo, hoodoo kind of stuff. Halo yeah. Mayombe, it's black arts. Okay, dark, dark type. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So Constanzo mm-hmm. befriended a Halo Mayombe priest okay. who taught him to become a con artist and a drug runner. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So some really good stuff going on yeah. in his life. So in 1983, Constanzo supported himself as a tarot card reader in Mexico City while he recruited uh-huh. men as slaves, disciples, and lovers. Oh, okay. He finally settled in Matamoros on the border of Brownsville, Texas. Mm-hmm. Here, he became a full-fledged cult leader with drug dealers, musicians, and police officers under his command. Wow. Constanzo sold drugs and held high-priced occult ceremonies that included human sacrifices. Yes, I was actually just looking up this Palo Mayombe 
they they do use body parts and stuff for mm-hmm. worship. And uh, one of the main differences between it and other things like Santeria and, and all the others that are kind of running in that same vein of magic, they don't really believe in deities. They worship their ancestors and believe mm-hmm. that their ancestors give them power. Yeah, because yeah. like Santeria, that one is kind of a mixture of Catholicism and, and like the Caribbean type, almost a voodoo type, type thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and this like they they believe in like the power of like earth, water, wind, fire, and they also believe that they get their magical imbibement from their ancestors, not deities, not like all knowing. They feel okay. like the magic is within them basically. Okay. And it's passed down, you know. Hmm. That's that's kind of interesting. That's a mixture of several different, different things types that I know of, of religions but... and yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of um, things from, like, the Mexico, especially, like, Mexico City area that I've heard of. Yeah. That does a lot of the ancestral worship yeah, and ancestral yeah. magic. This seems like a, a mix. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it seems like kind of a mix of, like, voodoo and, you know, that where they worship the ancestors and, and stuff like that. Kind mm-hmm. of just a big mix-up of. Of course, it's African slaves that lived in Cuba, so there's going to be a whole lot of cultural mixes happening. There. Right. So, anyway, sorry. Very that was interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So, he he did this. Um, he held these occult ceremonies that he charged a lot of money for. And um, these included human sacrifices uh, wow. that were needed to help protect. Uh-huh. The drug runners from rival drug dealers oh, and drug okay. gangs. Okay, yeah. So, um, in 1989, Costanzo decided he needed more powerful sacrifices and sent his disciples out to bring him a white man to sacrifice. Oh. Because that would provide a more powerful sacrifice. Okay. to uh, protect his drug runners from okay. those rival drug gangs. So is that like a more pure sacrifice? Like it would yield better results, I, I guess? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know why a white man, but you know, who knows? So this is when they ran into Mark Kilroy and separated him from his group. So now we're going to look at the investigation. Wow, that's so crazy. Right. Does it, do, did, could we find any information? How did they separate him? We'll get to that. Okay. She's teasing. She's teasing. Uh, we, we are. We'll, we'll okay. get to this. Okay, investigation. So now we're going to investigate. Okay. So Mark Kilroy was one of 60 people to go missing in Matamoros in the first three months of 1989. Oh, wow. 60 people? 60 people. Wow. So at first, police treated the case as a routine missing persons investigation. Often, students would show up after a few days with a hangover and hazy memory of what happened. So, this investigation was different because Mark's uncle worked at the U.S. Customs Service in Los Angeles, California. Oh, okay. So, when he heard that his nephew was missing, he contacted Brownsville Police, and they formed a tax force to find the missing Mark. Oh. So he pulled some strings. Yeah, yeah he pulled rank. Right? Yeah. The Matamoros police were concerned about bad publicity. And at first, they tried to turn the case back over to the other side of the border and say that Mark actually went missing in Brownsville. Oh. So they so were saying, a uh, no. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, here, you've got this kid went missing. His friends called, reported him missing, probably contacted family. Yeah. You know, family yeah. contacted Big Deal Uncle up in Los Angeles. Big Deal Uncle in... pulled some rank, yeah. right? Okay. And he's like, hey, dude, I work here in California, and this is what we do. You get your butt together yeah, there in Brownsville, yeah. and you find my nephew. Wow. And so they start scrambling. And then Madame Morris is afraid, oh, well, this is going to look bad, and here it's spring break, and we're going to lose money. So, no, yeah, he no already wants... went across the board. He didn't go missing over here. He went oh, missing over there in Brownsville. Because, I mean, you've got to have those tourists come, and nobody wants to be afraid of getting kidnapped, even though they're having 20 kidnappings a month. Right? <laughs> I mean, you're averaging But, but that was all over there in Brownsville. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was that, U.S. Yeah. problem. That's not yeah, us. Not us. Not us. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the U.S. government um, decided to work with Brownsville police during this investigation. Um, so they were giving, they were pushing them in over there at Madam Morris and saying, no, you know, we're going to work with yeah. Brownsville police. You need to work with Brownsville yeah, police too. Yeah. So together, officers from both sides of the border retraced Mark's steps through Madame Morris that night with the help of his friends. Okay. And they believed he meant foul play, but they were having trouble finding any leads because, you know, he goes over there, everybody's drinking, everybody's partying, his friends didn't know where they lost him because, remember, they'd lost him in the bars, and then they found him outside talking to these girls, and then they start to walk away, and then they lose him again. So he could be anywhere. Right. Inside the bar again with the girls. He could have walked he off. Have walked he off. could have stopped somewhere. Yeah. You know, they they don't know. Yes. So, they questioned informants, potential witnesses, followed tips, took his pictures to jails and hospitals, even hired a hypnotist to try and get more clues from Mark's friends. Wow. So, they are pulling out pulling everything. Out all the stops. Yes. Wow. So, while under hypnosis, one of the friends recalls a man approaching Mark at some point during the night, but he couldn't recall exactly when. So, that's possibly leading to something there. Investigators believe Mark was kidnapped and robbed, and then his body was dumped somewhere. So, they start getting helicopters to fly over both sides of the border and all-terrain vehicles searching the land. Because now they're thinking, okay, so he's approached by this man, he's kidnapped, he's robbed of his money, and, you know, anything valuable, and they've just thrown his body somewhere. You know, this area is, there's a lot of people, but it's also a desert area, so there's Yeah, there's still a lot of empty space. There's still a lot of, yeah. So, they have these aerial um, searches... They have these all-terrain vehicles out there searching. And then on March 26, 1989, the case was also highlighted on America's Most Wanted. But none of these leads panned out. Okay. So they're stuck. They still don't know. And then their big break came on April 1st, 1989. And this is when a car ran a checkpoint near Santa Elena Ranch. Instead of stopping the car, authorities in unmarked cars followed it to the ranch and identified Seraphine Hernandez Garcia as the driver of the car. So, authorities poked around the ranch and found evidence of cult activity, so they decided to continue to collect evidence before making a move. So, basically, this car ran this checkpoint, and they're like, Okay, okay, let's let's see, you know, what we've got going on over here because I'm yeah. sure that they've had their eyes over there and yeah. you know, probably suspected some kind of gang activity or something. Yeah. You know, and so on April 9th, they felt that they had enough evidence to arrest Seraphine and other cult members, and during the interrogations, the ranch caretaker identified a picture of Mark Kilroy and stated that he had seen him being brought to the ranch. Oh, okay. So, this is just happenstance. You know, they weren't really looking at this as being any type of lead for Mark. Yeah. You know, this was... It wasn't, like, a legitimate... No. Like, they didn't think anything was coming of it, No, this was... um, This was a checkpoint that they used for, you know criminal activity yeah. and stuff and so they were looking Nothing into specific. this yeah looking Not at this that. cult and this gang yeah. activity and stuff and so they were looking into this ranch for this cult and gang activity and, and everything up. and oh well here's this information on this missing guy yeah so april 11th 1989 police took seraphine and four other suspects back to the ranch. It was during this time that they were told about the cult activity, including human sacrifice. According to Seraphine, rituals were performed to provide protection to the cult members in Constanzo, and would also they would also perform rituals for pay. So people would also pay for these rituals oh, for protection okay. as well. Okay, so they were doing it for profit. Yeah. yeah. 
So they also found drugs, guns, and other items at the ranch. The bodies of 15 men were also found. Of the bodies that were identified, all but marks were from rival gangs. So these were oh. rival gang members that they were, they were taking sacrificing and sacrificing. And, yeah, okay. and then they had marks. Wow. So Seraphin provided details as the abduction as to the abduction and murder of Mark Kilroy. So here's where we find out what happened okay. to Mark. Yes. So Mark and his friends, you know, they had met, they'd seen him outside of that bar yeah. with the girls yeah. and stuff and so they started to walk off and as they started to walk off um seraphine got his attention mm-hmm. and kind of waved him over okay. and mark being drunk hey, and man, not yeah. yeah not yeah. really thinking walks over there was a little bit of a scuffle but he's drunk and there were two of them and they got him into the vehicle yeah and kind of subdued him they drove him to this ranch and left Mark inside the car for the rest of the night. Wow. Um, at dawn, they came back with food and left him again. Twelve hours after the kidnapping, Constanzo and men came and wrapped Mark's face with duct tape and tied his hands behind his back. Wow. And then walked him through a field to a storage cabin where he was tortured throughout the night. After spending hours being tortured, Mark was led out to a field where Constanzo hit his neck with a machete Ooh. until his head came off his body. Now, can you imagine? Because for a while, he's still alive yeah, while yeah, his yeah. neck is being hit yeah. with his machete. Oh, my goodness. Poor guy. Okay. So, then his head comes off. His brains were removed and boiled. His legs were cut off. And a wire was inserted into his spine to remove the bones once his body was decomposed. Then Mark was buried on the property. While investigating the ranch, Mexican authorities found that the murders in Matamoros were similar to several murders in Mexico City between 1987 and 1989. Hmm. They learned that Constanzo had a home in Mexico City and they followed the leads there where they were able to pin several other murders on the cult leader. Wow. When Constanzo realized the police had found him, he opened fire from the windows of the apartment, of his apartment window. Uh-huh. He also threw money out of the window and shot anyone who tried to pick it up. Oh, my gosh. So, now he's just killing people yeah, at random. Yeah, he's being crazy. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, when he ran out of ammunition... He ordered one of his closest cult members to kill him. Afterward, police arrested several other cult members and charged them with homicide and criminal activity. Yeah, wow. Kidnapping Mark Kilroy was the downfall of Constanzo and his cult. Due to Mark's uncle's connections, his kidnapping and murder gained international attention. Wow. If Constanzo's men would have chosen any other college student that was crowding the streets in Matamoros that night, things might not have gone down the way they did. Although Mark was at the wrong place at the wrong time, his del- death took down a major drug and crime ring, as well as a deadly cult. Wow, that's so crazy. So if anybody if else... anybody else, if it would have been anybody else, think of how many other people could have died... Right? ...at the hands of this crazy man. Yeah. That's a good one. That's Isn't that crazy? crazy? Man... You don't hear of like legit cults anymore. I know. Like, I mean, and human sacrifice. In the 80s, that's that's like pretty recent to yeah. think of like cults and stuff. Um, we need to do an episode on cults. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. That I would be totally amazing. I totally want to do one. Um, I've read about so many. They just amaze me. They just it it just blows my mind. We to could think probably about do a years worth of campfire <laughs> stories just yeah. on cults. Yeah. Because, I mean, it just blows my mind. Because, like, I've met people that are so charismatic that, like, you joke and you're like, oh, they could totally lead a cult. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. It's, like, one mental illness away from a real cult. Like, that was a legitimate cult. Like, that guy had to have been so charismatic and so, you know, welcoming and, like, inviting that, like, these people were willing to do these horrible things for this person. Right. You know, like... 
we definitely, definitely need a, a cult episode. You guys, let us know about your favorite cult. Let us know what your favorite cults are so we can research and maybe learn about some and new ones. give and you all present. your information yes. on your favorite cult. Yes. Or we can start your favorite <laughs> yes. cult. Yes, we could start a cult. <laughs> we could. Yeah. So, so I thought you guys would love yes, that one. That, that one was, was crazy. That one was crazy, and it's really, really good. I think I have a pretty good one. It's kind of a, a weird one, my mystery of this week. So mystify us, Mysti Lisa. Mystify us. Okay, um, so this is one of those, like... So good and kind of weird that it would be a movie. Like, it could be a movie. Um, just simply because it's just so random, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. This is called The Bizarre Saga of the Circleville Letters. I've heard of that. Yes. This happened all the way back in uh, 1977. Okay. We're in Circleville, Ohio. Small town. We went way retro we went tonight. Really retro, guys. We're going back to 77. We're in Circleville, Ohio, which is a small suburb, I believe, of, like, Columbus. Okay. That area. We're talking about a school bus driver named Mary Gillespie. She started receiving these threatening letters, these anonymous threatening letters, that were postmarked from Columbus. So, okay. a little bit of ways, you know. The letters were basically really upset at her and kind of calling her out because she was having an affair with a local school superintendent named Gordon mm -hmm. Macy. Okay. Massey, maybe. Could have been uh, Gordon Massey, probably. I think is how it's pronounced. Anyway, these letters also warned her that she needed to come clean about it. Something bad would happen to her. They were threatening. So, she didn't tell anybody about this. She has a family. She's married. She has yeah. a family. She hasn't told anybody about these letters. She hasn't told anybody about the affair. She's keeping it hush-hush. Well, I would neither. I mean, as much <laughs> as you, you could. You know, it's 1977. You could probably keep it hush-hush a little bit, you know. Anyway, she kept it from everyone until her husband received a letter addressed Ooh. to him. In this letter, it's also threatening, warning him to inform the school board about the bus driver and the superintendent having an affair. That they, I'm believing they needed to let the school board know so that they would fire them was the ultimate end goal. That the bus driver, <laughs> the married bus driver, and I believe the married superintendent should not be having an affair with each other. This person, this anonymous letter writer, really wanted them to be hurt because of this. Maybe this letter writer needs to find a new hobby. Uh, this letter writer <laughs> is pretty involved. <laughs> and so they they take these letters and the Gillespies go to the husband's sister and brother-in-law. Their names are Karen and Paul Freshour. And they didn't know who they could be from, mm -hmm. so they decided to send their own letters back to the address that it came from, advising this person to stop, whoever it was, to quit, you know, sis, you know, cease and desist, don't, you know, do this anymore. So on August 19th of 77, while uh, Mary Gillespie is on a trip, she's gone from the house. The husband, Ron Gillespie, gets a phone call. His children say that he gets very angry and he grabs his gun. He tells his children that he's going to go confront that letter writer and he drives away in his truck. Oh, that okay. can't end very well. No, not at all. So later that evening, Ron was actually discovered dead inside of his truck. Ooh. Okay. Not not long after he had left his house, from my understanding, it wasn't that long. He was discovered dead in his truck. His truck had been smashed into a tree. And so, his children say that when he left, he did not look drunk. They did not smell alcohol on him. Uh-huh. But when they did the autopsy, his blood alcohol level was .16. So, he was double the legal limit. Was he chugging in the truck? I don't know. See, that's that's the weird thing. All, uh, also, another weird thing, Ron's gun had been fired recently. They had gun tested it. They had done the residue test. It had been fired very recently, but there was not a shell casing or a bullet or anything found in the truck, around the scene, or anything. Huh. They never recovered anything. 
So even though all this kind of weird stuff is is happening, the uh, county sheriff went ahead and declared it an accident. Said that you know, right? You know, um, it was there was no foul play. He but, just very quickly got drunk, fired his gun, and ran into and a ran tree. into a tree, and uh, you know, but. They're trying to kind of brush it over, you know, oops, it was an accident. But some local residents then start receiving their own anonymous letters, which this person is writing these letters to people in town still talking about this affair between Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey. They're outing these two people to random people in the town. They also letter writer has a problem. Yes, <laughs> and they also start accusing the sheriff, Sheriff Radcliffe, of orchestrating a cover-up of the death of Ron Gillespie. Wow. Yes. So, this happens. These accusations are kind of thrown out. Random people are getting letters. Nobody knows who's really doing this and why. Um, a little bit of time goes on. George Massey ends up getting divorced. I can imagine. He and Mary then begin a relationship. Okay. Um, they Make always an honest maintained. Woman Evan. They said they've always maintained that they did not start their actual romance until after her husband had died and he was divorced. So they weren't really having an affair. I'm not really sure, but that's what they say. They say they they've maintained their romance did not start until after her husband had. So passed. this letter writer pushed them into pushed them into a relationship. Each other, you know. They might have been friendly, maybe, is what she's saying. Maybe overly friendly, but maybe not into that romantic pool yet. Matchmaker. Matchmaker. This letter writer is doing some damage. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wow. We're going to skip ahead, because this was in 77 when all this went down. Uh Poor Ron Gillespie ends up dying. Very weird circumstances. Time goes on. We're going to 1983. So quite a bit of time goes on. Yeah. Six years, that's nothing to play with. You know, the case is cold. If there was a case, if they were going to follow up on his death, the case would be cold, right? Okay, so Mary starts receiving another threatening letter six years later in 1983. At around 3.30 on February 7th of 1983, she was driving her school bus route and she saw a sign that had threatening words on it. It doesn't really say. Nobody's really said what the sign actually said. Okay. But it was a threatening sign attached to a fence post that mentioned Mary's daughter by name. Oh. Prompting her to pull the bus over and go grab it to tear it down. Right? She discovered that a piece of twine had been used to tie the sign to a small cardboard box. She looked inside the cardboard box. It contained a loaded 25 caliber pistol. Since the trigger was also tied to the string, it was some sort of booby trap. Like, if somebody was going to rip the sign down, it would shoot them when they pulled the sign. So it was set for for her her on her her bus route. On her bus route, yes. Probably her because it was on her her bus route. Okay. Hmm. And so somebody has done this really crude booby trap to try to, when she ripped it down, would shoot her probably like in the chest area around there, the way it had been set up. But she saw the box but before she, she... Saw, she saw the she saw the twine and she saw the box, but then it never actually went off. When she moved it, okay. it never actually went off. Um, so she turns that over to the police and, you know... They've realized, okay, somebody has made an attempt to rub off the serial numbers on the gun. Okay. But it was very half, half-assed. half So somebody doesn't really know what they're doesn't doing. Doesn't really know. The lab was able to get the numbers from the gun and matched it to Mary's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. Okay. Ron's brother. Okay. Okay. These were the people that they had taken the letters to at first and Uh was telling them. They were the only ones that really knew what was happening. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so the gun belonged to her brother-in-law, her ex-brother-in-law. He had recently divorced, actually, I guess he was Ron's brother-in-law, too, because he had just recently divorced Ron's sister, Karen. Okay. Okay, so he was just the in-law. He was nothing, he was no blood, he was just the in-law. 
So Paul is the in-law here. He had divorced the sister, so he has no ties to the family, really, at this point. Okay, so Paul had won custody of the kids in the house, and Karen was living in a trailer on some of Mary Gillespie's property. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so her dead husband's sister is living, is living on, on her, her property, property, and the brother-in-law is trying to murder her. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um. Uh, when questioned by the sheriff, Paul claimed that he kept his gun hidden in his garage, but he hadn't checked on it in years, so he didn't know that it was missing. Like, yeah. he couldn't account for it because he never really used it. Um, you know, it was just put up collecting dust. He would have uh -huh. never even known, you know, like guns do. Yeah, just, you know, like all of our you guns You stick are, a gun, huh? you stick a pistol up on a garage shelf somewhere and just leave yeah. it for years, you know. We all do how, that. You know, how I have guns in my garage yeah. just hanging out. I don't know. I do, anyway. So, he says that he would have never noticed it was missing. They also asked Paul to perform some handwriting tests to compare to the letters mm -hmm. that people had been getting. They asked him to copy them down. And the sheriff had really thought that the handwriting was a close enough match that it really could have been this Paul Freshour. Okay. Okay. Um, they used the handwriting symbol and Paul's gun as evidence and charged him with attempted murder. Wow. Of Mary Gillespie. Um, he was found guilty and received a sentence of 7 to 25 years in prison. But here's where the mystery kind of comes in. Okay. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that he's innocent. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that this is not as cut and dry as people think it might be. Okay. Paul's fingerprints were never found anywhere on the gun on the letters on the booby trap on the sign nothing books can take care of that yeah a search of his house failed to turn up any other um evidence like ammunition for the gun that he said he just kept out in the garage mm -hmm. or any materials that could have been used to construct the sign or the booby trap the twine and the boxes mm -hmm. and stuff like that they never found any materials like that Mary Gillespie testified that shortly after their divorce, Paul's ex-wife Karen had confided in her that she believed Paul might have been the author of the threatening letters that she had received years ago. Paul's response was, if Karen really believed I had done that, why did she never mention it in divorce court? Like, why would she have not mentioned, hey, this guy's a psycho, he's writing these letters. Right. She would have gotten custody. Paul got custody of the kids. She didn't. Yeah, and that's so really odd at that time, especially. Yes, and if she would have mentioned, oh, hey, I think he's a psycho doing these letter writings, she would have gotten those kids. Right. So why, if she really if she really knew that about him, why did she not mention it and make that a, yeah. you know, an issue? I mean, and in the 80s, dads very seldom, especially single dads, very seldom got custody of the kids over the mom. Exactly, exactly. I mean... And especially if the dad was known to be doing weird stuff like that, right. that would have never happened, right? So, uh, even though Paul wasn't working on the day that she that Mary had found the booby trap, he did have an alibi witness who had placed him at his own house between twelve thirty and four thirty. So not not really any time to go place this sign. Yeah. Uh, the prosecution did respond and said that. Uh, they had a witness who had testified that they had seen the sign before 11.30 a.m. They okay. thought that they had seen the sign before 11.30 a.m. So it was possible that maybe he had done it before this alibi witness had cooperated where he was at. Right. But no other witnesses reported seeing it, and she found it at 3.30. Okay. So 11.30 to 3.30, that's a long time that for is. somebody to drive by and not see it. Yeah. So the closer to 3.30 it was placed, the more accurate that time would probably right. be. Therefore, he would probably have that witness, you know, yeah. story. Years later, it was discovered a key piece of evidence was withheld at trial. Okay. Um, 20 minutes before Mary discovered the booby trap, another bus driver driving the route reported seeing a yellow El Camino parked at that spot along with a sandy-haired man that did not match Paul's description. Oh, he did match the description of another man Karen Freshour was dating at the time, though. And even though Paul did not own a yellow El Camino, Karen's brother did, okay? Karen's brother. The ex-wife's brother 
owned a car that her new boyfriend could have been driving. Because Paul and Karen divorced. And then Karen's brother had the El Camino, not Paul. Paul didn't have an El Camino. Karen Okay, did. so Karen. Karen had access to an El Camino. Okay. And she also had a new sandy-haired boyfriend. So, and this is Karen, the, the sister That's living on the property. The deceased. Deceased husband. Yes. Okay. It's very convoluted. It's very convoluted. It yeah. gets a little it gets a little sticky. Okay. But she has basically she has a, a guy that can do the dirty work for her and she has a, a access to an El Camino that somebody said they saw. Okay. Shoe prints were also found at the scene that did not match Paul's shoe size. Okay. So things are stacking up that hey, Paul is probably not the person that did this. So after Paul was incarcerated, um, a bunch of more anonymous threatening letters were now starting to be signed to the Circleville writer. Okay. Okay, they've given so now they're a name. They've given themselves. Yes. So these started being mailed to people all over central Ohio, not just in, in yeah, Circleville. All over central Ohio, which was about 90 miles away from where Paul had been incarcerated. So it probably wasn't him to be sending all these letters so far away. Right. The sheriff did become convinced that he was somehow sending letters from prison. But they put him in solitary confinement and denied him access to writing materials. He was constantly monitors, monitored, but the letters were still being sent. So it was It was not him. Paul. It was not Paul that was doing it. Um, even though the warden maintained it was impossible for him to have, had to have sent those letters, he was still denied parole in 1990, which was the first time he wow. could get parole. A few days later, Paul was mailed an anonymous letter mocking him for not being able to be paroled. Wow. Yes. And the sheriff still says that he's and doing it? And the sheriff it? still thinks that he's doing it. So, Paul ended up getting paroled in May of 1994. Okay. He went to jail for a long time. Yeah. He did. For something that he obviously he probably didn't do. did not do. <laughs> um, you know, it looks more like it. With the support of an investigative journalist named Martin Gant, the Circleville Letters case wound up being featured on Unsolved Mysteries a while okay. back. Like, yeah. The show was working on the story. Their office received an anonymous postcard signed the Circleville writer. Oh, wow. As the Unsolved Mysteries people were working writing. on it. It read, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. Oh. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. So, it's somebody that had to be keeping up with stuff that knew that it had been sent to Unsolved Mysteries that they were working on this story. Uh-huh. Somebody had to have known all these people, right? Yeah. Like they had to be involved in this, right? Wow. So, Paul Freshour has attempted to clear his name, and he wrote a letter to the FBI asking them to investigate Ron Gillespie's death again. Mm-hmm. Whoever perpetrated that probably was the letter writer and you know mm -hmm. is what he was thinking nothing ever came out of it and paul passed away in, two, in 2012 with people still thinking with people that he still was... thinking that he he was this letter writer and that's this, sad this, yeah. um paul and martin yant both believe that his attempted murder conviction was a frame-up job uh from his ex-wife karen in response to him getting the house and the kids in the uh -huh. divorce. Um, Karen was the only person who knew that Paul's gun was hidden in his garage. Um, and after Paul went to prison, Karen gained custody of the kids and took the house. Wow. It is suspected that the original series of letters from 1977 were written by a man named David Longberry. He was another school bus driver that worked alongside Mary Gillespie. And was really angry because he was trying to have an affair with her. And she said no. Oh. He was continually advancing on her. And she was not taking those advances. But was sleeping with the superintendent. And he got very upset. Okay. So he outed her affair. Yes. 
1999, this just is crazy, this guy, this David Longberry guy, becomes a wanted fugitive for raping an 11-year-old girl. Oh. And he committed suicide while he was on the run. Wow. There's never been any more letters. Says, it's possible that the Circleville letter saga is just two different stories that were linked together by somebody. Karen. Fresh yeah. hour. Such a Karen thing to do. It's a very Karen thing to do. Um, you know, and some people believe that Karen is actually the one that wrote the letters trying to just set up this frame job of Paul this whole time. Yeah. So. Well, what did Karen do to not get the house and her kids in the divorce? Right? See, that's the thing. Like, how, what? there has to be something that, that she was unfit. Right? Right. Especially in 1977 or 83. Yeah. 83 when they divorced. That's. Around that time. Wow. Right? That's really unheard of. Exactly. And, and like, she didn't have her own living or whatever. She was living on the property of her ex-sister-in-law. Yeah. So, like, yeah, there had to have been some weird stuff happening. It seems like she might be down to do some shady stuff. Exactly. You know what I mean? Wow, that was interesting. Super mystery. Nobody actually really knows who the Circleville writer is. Or writers. Or writers. Or if Ron Gillespie was really murdered. Or if he just got drunk really fast and ran into a tree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Chasing some... Chasing some anonymous person that won't leave him alone. Yeah. So that's whoever, actually his sister. That's possibly. actually his possibly his his blood relation. Yeah, his sister. Wow. So yeah, maybe that's why he got drunk and ran into it. Maybe dream. maybe he figured out who it was. Maybe yeah, I don't know. The mysteries have never been solved. Yeah. Wow. And then you, and then you have the mysterious letter to the unsolved mysteries people. Right. <laughs> On top of all of it, it's mystery upon mystery upon mystery. It is triple stacked mystery all up in here. But yeah, yeah, never been solved. Don't don't really know, you know. And Robert Stack never got his chance. Right? Nope. So, yeah. Awesome. Yep. That was great. Good. good mystery, good murder this time, guys. I'm very serious, listeners, about the cult thing. I want to know your favorite cult. I want to educate myself, and then we'll educate you guys. So what's your favorite cult? What's your favorite cult? I'll be posting it on Facebook. Um, I'm also going to try to get the Instagram a little more active now that I have a good, nice phone. I got a new phone. So we'll do we'll do what's your favorite cult as the topic for this next week. Okay. What's your favorite cult? What's your favorite cult? And as always, we're looking for your stories. So stories. Send us your creepy, paranormal Murdery, weird, mystery, yes, anything, anything, any comments, any constructive criticisms, any flat out criticisms, any type of engagement, guys. Just send it to us. If you want to criticize Lisa, do it all you want. Do it. Yeah. Tell me how awesome I am. I love to hear that. Yep. (laughs) At murderandmysterycast at gmail.com and we will talk to you later. Bye. Say bye. Bye. Bye.